have been talking about the church. Belong. Find your place at the table. Jesus died and rose again from the dead so that we might have salvation. He sent his disciples out into the world to preach the good news, the good, good news of the gospel to all who would hear. And he established the church. He said, Upon this rock, the confession, Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so from the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ has been the strategy by which he intended that the world would hear the good news of God's love and forgiveness found in Christ. In fact, the church is headquarters for the world mission of the gospel. This church right here has the great commission on our heart to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So the church is the foundation for the work of the gospel in the generations and today. And we are privileged to be part of the church. We are studying what it means, coming out of Romans chapter 12, what it means to be part of the body of believers. We have a little book, I Am a Church Member, that we're giving to each family in our church. How many of you have got your little book, I Am a Church Member? All right. Very, very good. I hope that you're reading it, that you're taking a look at it. I heard one person say, this is really convicting to read this little book. So I want you to read it. And it just gives you a biblical foundation and understanding of what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. I think we still have some copies in the lobby. If your family hasn't gotten your copy, you pick one up as you leave today. In Romans chapter 12, Paul describes the church. He describes the gifts that are given to the church. The act of worship and giving ourselves the spiritual gifts that are delivered to us by by the Christ who saved us. These spiritual gifts, he teaches us, are for the common good to be used in the body. And last week we saw the apostle pleading with us, look, if your gift is prophecy, then prophesy. If you're really gifted with service, then serve. If it's giving, then do it generously. If it's mercy, then do it cheerfully. Whatever your gift is, go about doing it. And today, he focuses on behavior in the body of believers. And when I think about sitting down at the Lord's table with each of you, I think of these verses we're about to read as table manners. How you conduct yourself when you're sitting at the Lord's table. How you treat the person next to you, on your right and on your left, as you're sitting at the table of the Lord. Jesus is perfect. He is pure. We don't have to say to Jesus, let your love be sincere. But he does have to tell his church that. Because the church loves her Lord, but we are not yet like our Lord in all the ways we ought to be like him. And that is evident if you look into your own heart. It's not hard to see the imperfection of the church. It's right here. Twenty years ago when I joined First Baptist New Orleans, if the church had been perfect then, it would have ceased to be perfect when I joined. Because I've got problems right here. I wish I could tell you that you 
We'll never look around the church and see fault and failure and sin. But the truth of the matter is, that does happen. And it's true of every church, and it's been true through the generations from the churches that were addressed by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, those seven churches that had such difficulty in the first century, all the way to today. So what I want to say to you is, do not let the imperfection of the church discourage you. Despite its imperfection, which has been true from the beginning, God uses the church in a marvelous way. He has done so through the ages. He intends for you to be part, a vital, functioning part of a local family of faith, a local body of believers. He intends for you to use your gift in that body. And He intends for you to behave a certain way toward other members of the family in particular, as well as people in general. And I'm going to read now from Romans 12, beginning with verse 9, where the apostle speaks to the church and says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Love must be sincere. Your love must be sincere. This is the great Bible word, agape, that I learned just this week is now part of the English language. I was playing a word game and I put agape in and usually it rejects those Greek words. But this one, it's in there. It's now an English word, agape. It is the great word that is used in John 3.16. For God so loved, he so agape the world. It's the word that's used in 1 John when the book says, God is agape. This is the great word for God's unconditional love. It is distinguished from the other words in this respect. Agape does not depend on the one being loved, but only on the lover. You may think sometimes, why in the world does God love me? The reason's not in you, it's in God. It's his character to love you. And Despite the things we do that displease him and dishonor him, he still loves us. And so when the scripture says love must be sincere, it's talking about this kind of love that's in you that doesn't depend on the one you're loving, but only on the character that God has built in you. This love must be sincere. Perhaps as you read that and hear it, you're thinking, well, my love is not sincere enough, so I'm going to sit here in this pew and work up some sincerity. Good luck with that. You know, we want sincerity. 
So how do you work on sincerity? Love must be sincere. The word sincere is actually a negative word in the Greek. It's not hypocritical. It's the word, it's the alpha privative that's the negative with the word hypocrite. Love without hypocrisy. That's what the word says here. Love without pretending. Now, hypocrisy happens when you say, I love you, but you don't do the deed that reinforces that. It feels hypocritical. Hypocrisy is you not following through with who you say you are, not doing what you say you'll do. So here is some very good news for you this morning. Love must be sincere means that love must be followed up with action. Think of love as motion instead of emotion. As action instead of a noun, it's a verb. Love with sincerity means that you must match your words with action. So there's somebody out there whom God has called you to love and you know you should love and you feel like your words have been out there but your deeds haven't been out there and it may be that the Holy Spirit today will single that person out in your mind and heart and for this person in order for your love to be sincere now you're going to have to live it out it's going to take action it's going to take motion on your part we know God loves us Because of his acts, his mighty acts. And this is true throughout the Bible. From beginning to end, God is known by what he does. And the scripture says, even a child is known by what he does. And you too are known by what you do. And to be a person of love is not just to say, I love you. But to love with sincerity, that is, to love in action. God wants us in motion, loving. Love must not be fake. Another way of looking at the word is to say it is unfeigned. Love must be unfeigned. It's not pretend kind of love. It's not a mask of love that you put on during Mardi Gras season. It's not you've got some way to uh, pretend that you love Love has to be genuine. In other words, you got to be real about who you are in this relationship of love. You cannot pretend to be somebody else hoping somebody loves you. You cannot despise who you are seeking to be somebody else other than who you are because who you are is the one God made. And you are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And who you are genuinely is the gift that God gives to this love relationship he intends you to be in. You don't need to pretend to be somebody else. You don't need to change your voice. You don't need to change who you are. You are the person marvelously gifted by the Father to operate in this body. And who you genuinely are in Christ, that person that you really are, is God's greatest gift to this family of faith. And you rob us of his greatest gift if you hold up a mask and you pretend to be somebody other than you are. When Trey 
joined this staff, I said to him, God has gifted you in very special and unique ways. And the bundle of who you are is important. In fact, it is God's gift to this family of faith. So I said to Trey, I want you to be who you are. And I told Tim the same thing. Maybe you don't remember, but I remember. I want you to be who you genuinely are because that's God's gift to this family of faith, to this body. And I would say it now to each one of you, each one of you. Be who you are in Christ. Don't pretend. Don't be fake. You are gifted by the Father. He has created you for His own special purpose. And you will fulfill that purpose and find the maximum love in your life as you are genuine and authentic in the relationships God gives you. Not holding up the mask. Not feigning. To be somebody you're not. But being who you are. Love must be sincere. Means that I love myself enough. To be comfortable in my skin. As we say now. And to put that out there. This is who I am. It's hard work to try to be somebody you're not. You ever tried to be that? You know go to school and try to be somebody that's not really you. Did you ever say after you got through with something, man, that, that wasn't really me? And you regretted being that person that wasn't faithful to who you are? The scripture here in Romans chapter 12 is saying to each of us look, assess yourself well. Be sober in your self assessment because if you see yourself standing in grace and you assess yourself from the point of view of faith in God, who you are and how you're gifted is absolutely amazing and it can change the world. It can change your world. So love must be sincere. It means that I put myself in motion to put deeds to my words and I am genuine and authentic in my love relationship with others. Now I'm going to give you what the scripture gives you, permission to hate something. Okay? It's okay, in fact, we're instructed to hate what is evil. And the word hate is used only here in all the Bible, this particular word. And the word has in it the idea of separation. It is to abhor that which is evil, to separate from that which is evil. If you see this couplet, you separate from what is evil and you cling to what is good. So they are stated and intended to be sort of opposite movements. Now, the evil in your life is that which is hurtful, destructive, malicious malevolent the evil in your life is self-destructive and destructive of relationships sometimes the word evil is used to describe physical disease like cancer the word evil is active it is aggressive so when you identify something, this is really very important in our culture because there is a lot of evil that we can get into 
and we can cling to it sometimes. We hold on to the evil thing. And when you find something that is tearing you down and making you less and destroying you on the inside and pulling down your relationships and killing the love relationships in your life, when you find something that is hurtful to others and to you, that's evil and you need to separate yourself from it. Abhor what is evil. Get away from it. But you're not to live in this vacuum. There are people who seek to separate from the evil in their life. And they say, okay, I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to separate myself from this evil thing, this evil habit, this evil attitude or action that I know is wrong. I'm going to separate myself from it. And then what do they do? It's kind of like a vacuum in their life. And pretty soon they don't know what to do next. So they go back to what they used to do and used to be. And the scripture is saying here, you separate from what is evil, abhor it, and you cling to something else. You cling to what is good. I'm so glad God is good, aren't you? See, God is the definition of good. God is good. One of my new favorite songs is, you're a good, good father. You are, you are. And when we sing that song, I just cry it out to God. You're a good, good father. You are, you are. And I'm loved by you. I am, I am. He is a good, good father. So here's the thing. You separate from that which is malicious, destructful, and hurtful. You abhor it, you separate from it, and you cling to something else. You immediately got to go to something else. You can't live in a vacuum. You've got to cling to what is good. Now, you identify the good with the character of God. And if you can say of this activity, this thing you observe in your community, in your church, in your family, that this is good. It is helpful. It builds us up. It helps us follow God more closely. It reflects the Father's heart, this thing. Then you cling to that. You cling to that. You partner up with it. You join it. That's the word cling. God has probably pointed out something in your life that you need to separate from. You've been holding on to it too long. Maybe when you think about it, man, it's something that's dear to you. But you know it's pulling you down. It's pulling your family down. It's hurting you. And you know it's best to let it go. And you've got to do it. You got to. So what are you going to do? Maybe the Lord is already pointing out something that is consistent with his character and his purpose in the world. And he is showing you this thing, this activity, this mission. And you know it to be good. It reflects the Father's heart. And so instead of just releasing this thing over here, you turn and you cling to, you join with this good thing over here. And you make these two movements that reflect your love of God and of others. Paul includes here the doctrine of one another. Richard Lubert, a former staff member, wrote a little track called The Doctrine of One Another. I saw it and I thought, what a, what a great idea. Because he uses one another in the last two phrases here as he talks about love. Be devoted 
to one another in love. This is the word phileo, which we know from Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's not quite the word here, but it's similar. It's a family kind of love. Be devoted as family, almost. The word is usually used to describe the devotion that a child feels toward the parent, or a parent feels toward a child, or a spouse feels toward their spouse. So it is a family kind of love that we are to operate in in the body of believers so that we use the term brothers and sisters not just accidentally, but we use it intentionally because we are devoted to one another that way. We are devoted to our brothers and our sisters in the body. So be devoted to one another with this kind of family love. That's what the apostle is saying. We're to love one another as family. Brothers and sisters, this truth escapes us too often in this modern age. It escapes us that we are to be devoted to one another in the family of faith as brothers and sisters, that we're to be bound together in love. I think everybody in the room should be looking for the ways in which you can love other people in the family of faith, other brothers and sisters in the body of believers, finding your avenue. Finding your purpose, devoted to one another, honoring others more than yourself, honoring one another. That is the esteem that you give to other people in the body. So it's not saying that yourself, you have no self-esteem, but it's saying that the esteem you feel toward your brother and sister is even outweighing the esteem you feel toward yourself. So you honor one another above yourself. In fact, this follows the teaching of Jesus. It parallels what he said. So I do you good even to my own hurt. I want to see you. I surrender what I want because I esteem you more highly than myself. And so it's okay. Honoring one another, devoted to one another in the body, love with sincerity. And then he says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Paul was a zealous fellow. He was zealous for the tradition of his fathers. He was so zealous, in fact, that he led the persecution of the church of Jesus Christ as an unbeliever. Once he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, his life was completely changed, and now all that zeal and fire in his personality is pointed towards serving Christ and his mission to the Gentiles and the sharing of the gospel to the nations of the earth. He is a man full of zeal. But sometimes we find Paul not zealous, but discouraged, even depressed. And so, through the years, Paul realizes sometimes the zeal is flagging. Sometimes it diminishes. That spiritual fervor, keep your spiritual fervor. That fervor is is a word for intensity and fire and passion. It's like keeping it at the boiling point, and you know how hard that is. So, The scripture instructs us to keep our spiritual fervor. So I want you to sit there for a moment and work up some fervor, would you? Well, we smile because, you know, it's hard to do. 
It's sort of like trying to work up some sincerity while I'm sitting in the pew. Well, we discovered about sincerity that really it's love in motion. That if I will match my words with deeds of love, that conveys and actually expresses sincerity. That if I'll be who I am in the relationships of love, that expresses the authenticity and genuineness of my love. And same may be true with spiritual fervor. To keep your spiritual fervor. Here's the key. It's the last phrase of the sentence. Serving the Lord. Now you might think this is the word for deacon. But this is not the deacon word. This is the word for a slave who does everything his master tells him to do. Really, it's in its heart the word for obedience. Obeying the Lord. Serving the Lord. Now, how are you going to serve the Lord? Your, your instruction is keep your spiritual fervor. You have any trouble with that? Some of you who are older believers, you have any trouble with that? Some of you, as we identified last week, who used to serve but no longer serve, do you have any trouble with spiritual fervor? Because my guess is that your fervor is connected to your service to the Lord. And if you are serving the Lord, the spiritual fervor and zeal for the Lord goes up. And if you stop serving Him, it starts sliding, all right? So the key is, once again, your actions being in motion, serving the Lord. You say, well, what, what am I going to do in service to the Lord? You already know that too. You've been gifted. You have a spiritual gift. I asked you to write that spiritual gift down. Not too many Sundays ago. I hope that you did. I hope you've been thinking about it. What is your spiritual gift? He mentioned some of them here. In other places, there are others mentioned. What would you write down? I want you to write it down because I want you to think about it. You know yourself pretty well. What's your spiritual gift? I asked you to write down your spiritual passion, what you love to do, what really charges you up. I hope that you did that too. Serving the Lord means that I, with discipline, intent, and perseverance, use my spiritual gift to minister to the body of believers of which I am a part. The spiritual gift you have, whether it is mercy, giving, teaching, prophecy, administration, there are so many. Whatever it is, it is given for the common good. And you bless us all when you use your gift and you bless yourself. I guarantee doing the gospel increases your fervor. Neglecting your spiritual gift, trying to retire out of your spiritual gift, brings the fervor down. Serve the Lord. There's just no two ways about it. You've got to be serving with what God has gifted you and called you to do. And he will use you for his glory. And it will bless you and increase the passion that you have for the gospel in your life. He says then, be joyful in hope. Be joyful in hope. We know that in everything we are to be grateful. 
Even when the storm is raging, even when sorrow comes. We know the apostle has said, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Let your rejoicing be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. He throws in the Lord is at hand because rejoicing in every situation, in every circumstance is more connected to our hope than it is connected to the circumstance. All right? We've got a hope. A hope that transcends whatever circumstances, situation, or difficulty that we may have. These are light afflictions that we endure. They are here for just a little while. They are temporary. And God is going to give us this great hope toward which we are pointed and toward which we move. And our hope is in Christ. He himself is our hope. We deposit our hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We look to him. He is our hope indeed. The Lord is at hand, so rejoice. Be joyful in hope. Kay Shepherd and Nelson usually sit right over here Sunday by Sunday, but today they are taking care of last arrangements for her mother and her father, both of whom died four days apart. I called them and they pulled over to the side of the road and I talked with them about what was happening and Kay said, I know they are both in heaven with Jesus. So even though there is sorrow today, I am still so glad that the pain and suffering is over and they are with the Lord. That's rejoicing in hope. That's being joyful in hope. Jesus told us, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what he told us. He wants us to be where he is. And this is a wonderful hope. It is a foundation for every day that you live. And you can be joyful about this hope that is yours no matter the difficulty. And it will, if you focus on this hope you have in Christ and the truth he has conveyed that heaven is your home and Jesus is your Lord, then you can be patient in affliction. Sometimes we get impatient in affliction. Patience in affliction means that I'm looking toward the hope, that I'm trusting in the Lord even when the trouble has come, even when it lasts longer than I thought it would or maybe it hurts deeper than I ever imagined it would. I stay patient in affliction, and my patience is an expression of faith in the God who made me, who called my name one day, as we just sang, who makes me his own, who incorporates me into his family, the church. I am trusting in him, so I am patient in affliction, and I am faithful in prayer. This thing about keep your spiritual fervor, that starts the paragraph. And now we get to this last little phrase, faithful in prayer. I'm going to preach on prayer during Lent. Starting February 14, 
I'm going to preach, pray like Jesus. I've picked out seven prayers. Some of them you will know and some of them you may have forgotten. Places where Jesus prayed. And we're going to talk about how Jesus prayed and how we can pray like Jesus. One of the things I want our family of faith to do during Lent is I want us to renew the discipline of prayer. If it has fallen by the wayside in your life, if you're not as disciplined as you used to be in prayer or as you want to be in prayer, when Lent begins, I want you to renew this discipline of prayer. It's 40 days of walking like Jesus walked and praying like Jesus prayed. Faithful in prayer means that this is a discipline of my life. God is faithful to us always faithful, caring for us every day in every way. And our faithfulness is a discipline. So, we have love with sincerity and keep your spiritual fervor. And both of these uh, we address by being in motion as believers, by serving the Lord, by exercising our gifts, by loving in action as well as in word. And he wraps up this passage, this practical instruction to us by saying, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Sharing with the Lord's people. This is the great word of the Bible, koinonia, in its verb form. Sharing together in the common possession of the Spirit of God. Sharing with one another. How do I know how to share? with anyone who has a need. We have five competencies we are pursuing at First Baptist New Orleans, and the second one is we gather to go to the need. Our ministry is need-driven. You say, why would you have a need-driven ministry? Because Jesus had a need-driven ministry. As he was on his way, he came across people who were in need, and he ministered to them. He was mighty in word and in deed. That was his reputation. He was mighty in deed because he responded to needs. As he went along, he intends for his church to do the same. In fact, he intends for each of us to share, to participate, to to contribute to the need of those who are in the body. He wraps it up with this little phrase, practice hospitality. Now, you know the word practice means that it's a discipline. Brady's five years old. Sometimes he's reluctant to take his piano lessons. He's my grandson. I order him in there. If I'm there, say, Brady, you've got to go do this. His mother does the same, so he's taking those lessons. Our girls did the same when they were little, and now they say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, mom and dad. Mom used to say, if you'll do your piano lesson, I'll do your chores. My wife did that. Is Janet here? She may come early. I'm telling on her, all right? It's a discipline. You got to do it. Okay, here's the discipline. God is teaching you to practice Hospitality. Now, hospitality is a very important word. It has that word phileo in it that we saw before, the love of family. We saw that earlier in this very passage, and now it's got this word for love of strangers. You find it hard to love strangers. 
I had one of the deacons tell me they're trying to meet everybody who's new. So if they come across somebody who's new, they shake their hand and they introduce themselves. Is that you, Don? I think it was Donald that told me this, okay? And so one day he saw a new face in the crowd. He ran up and he said, hello, my name's uh, Donald, and I just want to welcome you to First Baptist. And the response was, I've been a member here 30 years or 20 years. (laughs) So you always take a risk, you know, if you try to express loved ones enough. You see a stranger, you want to love on them a little bit. There's a little bit of a risk there. Now, Now, Don took a little bit of risk, and that happens to me now and then as well. People that I should have known or am supposed to know, but somehow I forgot. And so they really aren't strangers as much as I thought they were. But strangers are a little bit intimidating. That's why the priest and the Levite went by on the other side of the road. There was a stranger laying over there, and he had a need. But they were in a hurry, and they didn't know the guy. If they'd actually known him, they might have stopped. Hospitality is you in the place where you sit, reaching out to the people around you and just connecting. Naturally, consistently practicing hospitality. I had somebody tell me today that they walked into First Baptist New Orleans and immediately people started loving on them. It was the first time they'd ever been here. And people started loving on them as soon as they showed up. Now, this was a testimony from today. She said, we just felt the love like we hadn't felt it anywhere else. Brothers and sisters, I would love to multiply that a thousand times. So that everybody who walks in these doors, whoever they are, whatever their background, when they walk through these doors, they are immediately loved on. Because people are are expressing what the scripture says here. They are practicing hospitality, not only in their home, but right here in the church of Jesus Christ, in the house of worship. People are being loved on and welcomed. Friendships are developing. We're taking the risk to extend a hand to those we do not know yet and say, this is who I am. And I'm glad you're here. It's fundamental. It's so basic. And we forget it so easily. And the truth of the matter is we gravitate toward the people we know. We just do. But hospitality is gravitating toward the people you don't know yet. Who are soon to be friends in the body of Christ. Practice hospitality. Share with those in need. Love with sincerity. Keep your spiritual fervor. Bow with me, please. As we bow, the Holy Spirit, I know, is active through His Word, addressing things that are in our lives and we, we just want to open up to him, brothers and sisters, and let him convict us. Let's, let's let God speak, and let's hear him in our heart. The things from which we must separate, the good things to which we must go, the things that we must leave behind, the things that we must reach toward, the service of Christ in the body of believers. Lord, I pray, find us with ears open and hearts open. Do your work in us, Holy Spirit. Every staff member here, every deacon here, every Bible teacher in the room, every servant, every care effect volunteer, 
God, search our hearts. Show us what to cling to, what to separate from, where to serve in the family of faith and the body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray.